Okay, let's move into our time of study together. We are, as uh, I said a little while ago, into Daniel chapter 6 this morning. Now, it's a well-known chapter. Uh, it's a portion of scripture that uh, probably many of us grew up uh, through Sunday school and so on, um, being read the account of Daniel in the lion's den. But there's a lot of things in this chapter that probably we didn't cover uh, in our youth or as we were growing up or as we've heard this account in the past. First of all, let me make the point that it is not a story. Uh, we are so prone to talk about Bible stories. These aren't stories. These are historical accounts of real events that actually took place. And we'll make some comments as we go through this morning. Just to uh, give you the overview of where we are chronologically, so let me just again remind you that the chapters that we have in the book of Daniel are not necessarily the way that they played out in terms of time. So uh, it's been organized in the way it has. This is God's design that we have it as it is, um, because the second part of the book from chapter 7 through to chapter 12 really deal with dreams and visions that are specifically pertaining to the nation of Israel. The first part of the book is what many commentators would refer to as the historical narrative or the historical uh, portion of the book. Um, so we see that chapter 6, the whole lion's den issue, uh, is down here, around about 539 BC. Now the diligent amongst you will notice that it's about the same time that we have this change of power in Babylon. Now, up until this point, Nebuchadnezzar and his uh, dynasty had been on the throne. In fact, it actually goes back prior to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, his father, was the king before Nebuchadnezzar and then so on subsequently down. And we've looked a little bit of the history of that already. Um, but we get to that night uh, where Belshazzar ends up, uh, sorry, Belshazzar, you know, correction, because Daniel's Babylonian name was Belshazzar. And of course, we have Belshazzar, who is the um, grandson, effectively, of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he is the individual who brings the cups out of the temple that we were looking at last week, the, the, the Jewish temple. The cups they put in their temple, they take it from Israel, from Jerusalem, and they start to use these as they indulge in their revelry and their partying and so on. And God, is, uh, he just crosses a line and God causes his handwriting to be seen on the wall. And as a result of that, Daniel's called for, interprets it, and tells him that that night the kingdom will be given to the Medes and the Persians. And that night is the night that the Babylonian Empire, as it was, falls. Now, we made the point last time that Babylon itself did not fall. Now, that's significant because if you look in Jeremiah 50, 51, and uh, Isaiah uh, 13 and 14, and Revelation 17 and 18, you'll find references there to the fall of Babylon. And a lot of commentators make the assumption that it's already happened, that it happened here in 539 BC. That's not the case. Babylon was subdued, it was taken over, but the city never fell, uh, which prophetically is significant because it means that those scriptures that speak of the fall of Babylon are yet to come to pass. Babylon will emerge from what scripture reveals as a centre of world religion once again. Uh, and seemingly it will be a place that will unite Catholicism and um, so-called Christianity and Islam and all the other religions and isms and faiths and so on on earth. It will all be brought together under this umbrella and it will become a one world church. And so we need to keep watching and seeing what's going on around the world. Um, there's some really interesting uh, studies and comments on these things um, by some great Christian commentators and uh, scholars. Um, many of you will be familiar with uh, Amir Safati and his uh, comments on these things and others. There's many good uh, um, studies of students of scripture that are revealing or um, sharing what they believe is going on. But certainly we are seeing a, a breaking down of the traditional values held by the world's main religions. And, and every one of them is being told they must compromise, they must be more tolerant, they must be more accepting. And so what we see going on in Christianity um, with this attack on the word of God and the fundamentals of our faith, we shouldn't be surprised at those things because actually the same is going on with other religions and other faiths. Um, the radical arm of Islam is continually um, spoken against, even by uh, many Muslim clerics these days. 
Uh, and yet for radical Islam, for many of them, all they see themselves as doing is standing up for the fundamentals of their religion, of their faith. Uh, and yet those things are becoming increasingly unpopular, uh, of course, for obvious reasons in the world in which we live. Um, so we're seeing this merging of thoughts and ideas and this idea that we must be accepting. So there will be a rise of Babylon again. In fact, we've already started to see it, but it's coming uh, with increasing speed onto our horizon. Babylon itself, though, the empire as it was, uh, fell um, at the uh, hand of Cyrus, the king of Persia, who came in. And we'll talk a little bit about these things as we go through the study this morning. But just to highlight that this chapter follows hot on the heels of Cyrus, King Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king, stepping into Babylon, uh, claiming it as his own. Now, the interesting thing, and this is, again, what you don't tend to get from Sunday school, if you look at the chronology, and I don't expect you to be able to see all the details on the chart there on the right of the screen, um, but you get the lifespan of Daniel. It's highlighted in orange there. Um, he was roughly 14 years old when taken to Babylon. That means that by the time we get to this chapter, Daniel, this man who's thrown into the lion's den, would have been around about 82 years old. Now, that's not the picture that often we get painted. Often we perceive a young, sprightly, healthy man uh, thrown in. This was an 82-year-old man. I mean, the fool being thrown into the lion's den could have killed him uh, on its own. Um, but the Lord preserves him, not just from that fall being thrown in, um, but also from this incredible event where these uh, no doubt hungry lions don't touch him. Um, and it's only going to be for another two years after this event that we're going to see Daniel on the scene. That doesn't mean he dies after this. It just means there's nothing recorded in Scripture. Uh, so we've got another couple of years of ministry of Daniel, but he's right at the end and the twilight of his ministry at this point. Um, so it's just interesting to get a take of this, that this isn't a young man. This is an old man with a lot of experience, a lot of years of trusting God that is going through this situation that we're going to see given to us this morning. So let's go into Daniel chapter six and we read. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes. OK, so these are people with authority, the government officials, effectively, that are ruling over this realm. Uh, Babylon had been a mighty empire. Now, the Medo-Persian Empire uh, eclipses it. It's larger. Uh, it has a, a greater uh, degree of uh, uh, real estate, if you like, more territory that it covers. And so, of course, um, those that were in charge of the empire, Cyrus is the head of the empire. Uh, we'll see in a moment that Darius is uh, given the job of looking over the realm of Babylon, uh, and then Darius himself delegates 120 princes to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three presidents. So if you like, we've got pretty much a prime minister type role, but three of them uh, all working side by side. And it says of whom Daniel was first. It doesn't mean he was just picked first. It means he was the one that was deemed to be the most important. So of these three individuals, Daniel's head and shoulders above them, certainly in the eyes of uh, not just Cyrus, but uh, Darius here, uh, and certainly given this authority and his position. And it says that the princes might give account unto them, and the king should have no damage. So the king, rather shrewd, delegating responsibility, making sure that he himself is not put in a difficult predicament, which the irony, of course, is that is exactly what will happen here. Daniel over these 120 princes. That puts him in a great position and also sets himself up um, for a huge amount of jealousy uh, from these 120 princes that have to answer to this Hebrew who was taken away from his own land, from Jerusalem, as a slave when he was just 14 years old. And we'll see that there's great animosity between these um, 120 princes, uh, the other couple of presidents that are there, uh, they all come against Daniel. They just have this real disdain for him. So, remind you, it pleased Darius to sell over the kingdom, 120 princes. Uh, Darius, by the way, was a title that was given to Medo-Persian kings. Now, we're familiar, of course, with the idea of Pharaoh in Egypt. Okay, the idea of a Pharaoh was that he was the leader of uh, the Egyptian dynasties, such as they were. But the, uh, the name Darius here is also uh, a title. It, it's not just a um, uh, uh, the name of the king himself. We'll find actually 
from the the text that there's uh, it actually means holder of the scepter. Um, and actually, there was a number. There's like five other Dariuses that we see come to power. Um, so Cyrus again was the king of the whole Medo-Persian Empire, having united the two nations, the Median Empire and the Persian Empire. If you remember, we said last time that he had one parent. I believe his uh, uh, father was a Persian and his mother was a Mede, if I've got that the right, right, right way around. Um, and he manages to unite these uh, these two great empires into one, the Medo-Persian Empire, one of the greatest empires the world has ever known. Now, as we go through this, we also see that uh, Darius was appointed to this position by Cyrus himself. So Darius was not the supreme head of the empire. He's appointed to this role in Babylon by Cyrus. In fact, Daniel chapter 9, when we get there, the first verse opens and it says that he was made king over the Chaldeans or literally put into the position of being king. Um, Interestingly as well, at the end of the previous chapter, uh, we're told that Darius the Median took the kingdom now, it's easy to just read that and assume that he became king, but that's not actually what the, the Aramaic implies. The word that's translated took in the Aramaic is the word kibel, and it means to acquire. It's also translated elsewhere as receive or to take. Um, so we'll come on, come on to the identity, as it were, of who Darius really was in a second. Um, but on behalf of Cyrus... Uh, His general, his leader of his army, was the one who took the kingdom. He was the one that led the uh, Medo-Persian Empire into Babylon. If you remember, the waters of the Euphrates were diverted upstream, and so they were able to sneak into the city at night. Uh, and one of Darius's, uh, sorry, one of Cyrus's chief generals was the individual who had that um, responsibility of leading the army and did that. And he took the kingdom. So uh, it seems that Darius here was the one responsible for leading the empire. Now, secular history records that there was an individual by the name of Guberu, uh, translated slightly differently uh, in various places, the Greek spellings are slightly different from the um, the Aramaic and so on. But uh, this individual, Guberu, was Cyrus's military general. He was the one that led that campaign. And so it seems that as a reward for his conquering of Babylon, without a fight, without a battle, uh, just sneaking at night and then just taking the throne. Of course, Belshazzar was killed in the process, who we uh, looked at in chapter 5. Um, as a result of that, then uh, Darius, or Guberu, is appointed to be ruler of Babylon. Now, you can see there the kings of the Persian Empire. There were some, of course, before Cyrus. But Cyrus is uh, the one that unites the Medes and the Persians, brings them together, uh, and then you see the others. And, of course, there's some significant names there. Cambyses II was also known as Artaxerxes. Uh, he's the one referred to in Ezra chapter 4. He stops the work on the temple that had begun. Uh, and then we also get the very significant one there, uh, Darius the Great, um, from 520 to 486 BC. So significant because he is the one in whose days the building of the temple is finally approved uh, and it goes ahead. Very, very uh, significant. Uh, and it's also the ending of the um, time of the servitude, sorry, the desolations of, the, of Jerusalem. There's two periods of 70 years uh, historically that are triggered because of this, originally the Babylonian conquest of Israel. Now, Jeremiah prophesied this, that they would be in Israel, in Babylon for 70 years. As a result of it, we find that there's 70 years decreed for the people. That's the servitude of the nation. Um, uh, and then there's desolations of Jerusalem. They're typically the terms that scholars use. They don't start at the same time. There's a 19-year difference between them. The servitude of the nation starts in 606 BC, and Cyrus, King Cyrus, is the one that brings that to an end. Then there's the desolations of Jerusalem. That begins 19 years later uh, in 587 BC, and it's Darius the Great that brings that to an end. Okay, so uh, really significant dates, uh, incredibly important piece of history. The if you're diligent and you do your study, what you'll find is there's an, another 19 year gap, one to do with the people, one to do with the city, and that occurs in 1948 and 1967. 19 years between them, and you'll find that there's a prophecy that's given by Ezekiel, uh, it's confirmed, or details have also uh, drawn from Leviticus. 
Uh, but this prophecy specifically speaks of the people and of the city, uh, the nation. And those prophecies are given, they, they start, as we've just been looking, with 606 BC, uh, with the first one regarding the people, and then five, thir- sorry, uh, yes, 587 BC, which is the prophecy that when Jerusalem is finally destroyed. They both trigger these prophecies that are fulfilled to the day when Israel becomes a nation again in 1948, and when they recapture Jerusalem in 1967. Uh, we haven't got the time to go through the details now, but uh, we'll maybe one day have a look at those. But it's, it's, it's fascinating and it's an incredible study to realize how much in control of history God really is. So we have this guru anyway uh, that we uh, believe is this individual, uh, that Darius, also known, known as Darius, his title given to him as he takes the throne of Babylon. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes. How do you think that made them feel? Uh, Because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. So Daniel placed in his position, he's outranking all the government officials preferred before them. And you can kind of hear them murmuring in the background already. You know, who does he think he is? It's Daniel. Well, we're going to see that uh, hatred of Daniel build. Uh, Anti-Semitism isn't anything new. Uh, We see it way back even here in uh, Babylon. Notice that an excellent spirit was given to him, or was in him, rather. Of course, we know it was because it was the spirit of the living God. It was the same Holy Spirit that you and I have the benefit and the joy of knowing in our lives also. In the Old Testament, we find a number of occasions that the spirit of God uh, indwells or comes upon an individual for a particular ministry or purpose. And clearly, this isn't the only time we're told this, that Daniel had God's spirit leading, guiding, filling him and leading him in the decisions and the dreams and everything else that we see taking place and so on. So Daniel becomes one of Darius's government's uh, most uh, important officials. Uh, And again, much to the consternation of the other officials who were there. So why the antagonism? Why was it that they didn't like him? Well, if you remember back in chapter two, as a result of Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar makes him chief of the Magi. The title is actually Rab Mag. It's a term that we find used in Jeremiah of Daniel, uh, but it was a hereditary Persian sect. Um, you know, it was a priestly group, effectively. Now, these Magi were really revered. They were responsible for not only interpreting dreams, but also for appointing kings and acting as royal counsellors. The idea was that because they could interpret dreams or see into the future, that they would be the ideal people to put the next king on the throne. And so they become effectively king makers. Now, of course, Daniel wasn't a Mede or a Persian, uh, and yet he's placed in this position. Uh, you can imagine how the, um, the Medes and the Persians felt about having this Jew as the head of their religious group, effectively. Uh, and clearly, this is where some of this antagonism comes from. Now, as we've already mentioned, the significant thing is that Daniel clearly gives to these magi who he's placed in charge of and also clearly witnesses to. Uh, he places them with instills in them this knowledge that he receives that there is going to be coming a king to rule over Jerusalem. And Daniel is given a detailed prophecy in chapter nine of that. We'll look at it when we get there. And these kings, these more so these magi, who are, whose job it was to appoint kings, wait until the right time. They are given a, a kind of a tip off by seeing a sign, which is a star. Uh, they know that this is the the moment, and they set upon a journey to Jerusalem. And they arrive. There wouldn't have been just three of them. There'd have been a whole group, anything up to a thousand, including all the outriders and their support crew and everything else. And they arrive in Jerusalem. And scripture tells us that all Jerusalem was troubled. It wasn't just three old wise men, as often we're told in the Christmas narrative. Uh, There have been a multitude of these uh, individuals, these magi that arrive. And they go to Herod, who's the king at the time, who's an Idumean, who wasn't Jewish, and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Of course, Herod is absolutely beside himself uh, and then sets about having trying to have all the children killed to try and remove any potential threat to his own throne. But the important thing is that we realize that these magi, who Daniel is made the head over, these magi come to acknowledge that Jesus is the rightful king of the Jews. 
And I've uh, laboured this point and I'll mention it again because I think it's so important and it just opens up so much of scripture when you realise that there are two basic principles that are laid down in the Old Testament, things that have to be done, have to be set up. One was the law, which leads to the sacrificial system, which leads to the shepherds whose job it was to look after the sacrificial lambs on the hills around Bethlehem. They weren't ordinary lambs. They were lambs that were getting ready for sacrifice. And of course, the shepherds come to acknowledge that Jesus is without blemish and is ready to be offered as the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. So the law, which leads into all of that, was one thing that had to be set up. The other thing was the monarchy, so that Jesus can sit and rule and reign over this earth. And of course, the Magi come to acknowledge that. So the shepherds speak about the death and the sacrifice of Jesus, of course, his first coming. And the Magi speak about Jesus's second coming. It's not just some random thing that we have these shepherds and these so-called kings in the Christmas narrative. It is integral to the entire theme of Scripture. Uh, maybe at Christmas time we'll uh, go through that again. We've done it uh, many a time, but it's such an important thing to understand. The more I go through it, the more I'm just overwhelmed by the detail and how important these things really are. Anyway. There was obviously uh, no doubt um, uh, the other uh, magi and appointees were expecting now a regime change as Daniel is old and this new leader, a Medo-Persian, because of Darius the Mede. So he's from that group. So they were probably expecting a change now, Daniel to be moved aside and somebody else to come in because Daniel had served under a Babylonian king. But the fact is now there's a Mede that's now to be sitting on the, the throne of Babylon, effectively, under, of course, Cyrus, uh, Cyrus's overall ruling of the empire. And so they were probably expecting Daniel to be moved aside. And yet Daniel is promoted, in effect, even further. Uh, he's the most important man in the whole realm. And so the fact that Daniel is appointed as head over the others speaks volumes of his standing in Babylon, the respect he must have had. And also from the conversation that we understand from meeting Cyrus at the gate of Babylon. Uh, we know from Josephus that the day that Cyrus arrived, which had been a few days after Babylonia, uh, Babylon uh, fell, as it were, to um, Guberu, to Cyrus's general, Darius as we know him. Uh, Daniel arrives at the gate and presents him with a scroll of the book of Isaiah. Uh, which speaks specifically of Cyrus himself. It mentions him by name. Now, Cyrus clearly had great regard for Daniel as a result of this, and obviously that's passed down, and uh, Darius also the same. Now, it's against that background that we find this conspiracy in this chapter to try and frame Daniel and remove him from the scene. Foolishly, Darius, we're going to see, will sign his decree that no one should petition any power except him, for 30 days, or the risk is if you do that, you'll be thrown to the lions. In other words, there is no other uh, authority that you're allowed to bow the knee to or worship or pray to except Darius himself. And of course, the, the law of the Medes and the Persians was such that it cannot be altered. So it was a law that was higher than Darius himself. If you remember, when we were looking in chapter two, we mentioned that Nebuchadnezzar had a kingdom like no other. He was completely autonomous. Nobody told him what to do. He could make any law that he wanted to or break any law that he wanted to. He was the king. However, when we come now, we find that, of course, Cyrus is, again, the ruler of the empire. But the law of the Medes and Persians stated that even the king couldn't change the law. So it's quite significant as we go into this. Uh, and, of course, the most remarkable thing that we're going to see as we go through the rest of the chapter is Daniel's reaction to this. We read then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. Now notice this, but they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Now it's interesting that in 1 Timothy 3, 2, we're told that a bishop, that's a, typically an elder with additional responsibilities from the scriptural uh, details, uh, must be blameless. Those that are in charge within the church have to be beyond reproach. Um, so that the name of God and his doctrine is not blasphemed, is what Paul says. Uh, now, Daniel clearly was of this nature. He was beyond reproach. The Lord had appointed him. There was nothing to be censored in his life. There was nothing that he had to fear. There was nothing that was going to be brought up. No social media uh, smear campaign that was going to pull up some skeleton from his closet. You know, none of that. Daniel was uh, clean. He was upright godly man and he lived his life serving God and so they realized they can't find it says they could find no occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful 
neither was there any error or fault found in him. What a great testimony to have recorded in the word of God, that Daniel was of such incredible uh, integrity and character. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. It was clear they realized where Daniel's heart was. Daniel obviously was not backward or shy about sharing his belief in his God. And it had come out, of course, on many occasions with Nebuchadnezzar and so on with subsequent kings that Daniel had quite happily nailed his colors to the mast and said whom he trusted. Verse 6 says, then these presidents and princes, notice this, that these presidents and princes, we've already been introduced, there was 120 presidents and there's another two princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto King Darius, live forever. Again, we've got a great testimony of Daniel here. Um, Daniel was unwavering. Uh, and uh, my comment there, you know, if that's the only chink in our armor, we need not worry. If the only criticism that people can level against us is that we serve God, that we love God, well, then we don't need to be too concerned about anything else they may try and say against us. Now, we're told again that all the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors, the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, this starts, they start by saying, O king, live forever. That was a kind of a Babylonian thing. Uh, it was the idea that the kings could become immortal. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar certainly trying to believe that in the image that he set up, uh, that his empire and kingdom would have no end. Of course, it did. Um, but it's interesting, again, that they come to the king now, they bring this decree, and obviously they're bushing up, they're playing a bit on his ego and so on. Um, you know, that uh, pride so often becomes the root to so many problems. You know, and what started off, no doubt, with these men is just jealousy, moves on to hatred, then on to scheming, then on to lying and deceit. It's interesting that we're told in the book of James that desire conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We see a progression in these things, even in our own lives, and we see it here with these men. Again, no doubt started just jealousy. That becomes a hatred of Daniel, and then this scheming, lying, and then on to deceit, and so on. So we carry on. Verse 8, now, O king, they say to him, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which alters not. It's interesting they add that just in case the king had forgotten, which I'm sure he hadn't. But they want to make the point that, king, you can't even change this yourself. But they put it in such a way that it seems such a great idea that the king thinks, well, yeah, why should anybody worship anybody but me? I'm the king after all. Uh, well, he wasn't prepared for what was about to come. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. Now, notice all he does is sign it. He just puts his name to it. They've already done the wording. They've gotten it all drafted out. And they come and present it to him and say, King, it's a really good idea. You're the best king we've ever had. You know, really think that you should, uh, you know, just have this kind of statute that nobody can worship anybody but you. And the king thinks, oh, well, why, why not? What a great idea. Now, of course, there's reference there to the uh, the lion's den and being thrown. The critics love to, to challenge these things. Uh, but one of the best Bible scholars and uh, experts uh, that we, we know of, history, uh, gives us, it was a man by the name of Professor Robert Dick Wilson. Um, he wrote a book, investigation, Scientific Investigation of the Old Testament, where he went through every single consonant, every single letter, and checked it and verified it and looked at the surrounding um, documents that we have from other cultures and nations, looking at the monuments and confirming that everything we have in the Bible is indeed historically accurate. Now, in regard to the whole idea of the lion's den, he makes this comment. The decree of Darius the Mede with regard to the den of lions was easy of execution. Inasmuch as at that time lions were common in all that part of the world. The Syrian kings were wont to hunt lions as a pastime. If I may just pause there, if you go to the British Museum, you'll see reliefs all over the wall uh, in the Assyrian section showing that, and that's indeed the case, that kings love to go hunting lions. Now, there's some interesting reasons given in scripture as to why it may have been. But nevertheless, for now, let's move on. Thus, Tilgarth Pelezer uh, uh, um, I says that he killed 920 lions in one hunting expedition. Uh, and actually, Nubaril uh, says that he killed at one time 120 lions, and at another time he captured 50 young lions and shut them up in Calais and in the palaces of his land in cages and let them produce their young. At another time, he killed 370 strong lions. 
in his menagerie. He says also that he had herds of wild oxen, elephants, lions, birds, wild asses, gazelles, dogs, panthers, and all animals of the mountains of the plains to show to his people. Uh, obviously, this was a, a, a pride thing as well. Um, no, no pun intended with the lions, but uh, that they wanted to just have these these beasts, uh, powerful beasts, and you know, cage them and so on. I mean, not dissimilar to a zoo, I guess. They probably weren't treated as well as they are in today's zoos. Uh, moreover, the Hebrew uh, poets and prophets were familiar with lions, and people also made proverbs concerning them. And their heroes, such as Samson and David, are said to have slain them. Uh, so also the oldest story in the Aramaic language, uh, that of Achir from the 5th century BC, treats the lion as a well-known animal. Herodotus says the lions uh, interfered with the march of Xerxes' army to Greece. Uh, that's the king, by the way, of uh, Queen Esther's um, uh, acquaintance. Surely if we can believe that the Romans imported lions from Africa and threw them to the Christians to them in the Colosseum, we can readily believe that a Medan king of Babylon may have had a den of lions into which to throw those who had disobeyed his laws. Certainly, at least, there was no physical impossibility in the matter. So Robert Dick Wilson just making the point that the things that we, we have recorded in the book of Daniel and particularly chapter 6 here regarding this lion's den, it's no fabrication. It's not made up. It really was the way things were at the time. Now, verse 10, when Daniel knew that his writing, that this writing was signed, so Daniel knows that this decree has been passed, he went to his house and his windows being open in his chamber, no doubt it was hot, a nice sunny day, but like today, and the windows were open toward Jerusalem. Notice this, he knelt, this is facing Jerusalem, he knelt upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Now we're going to make camp here for a few minutes because there's some really important points to bring out of this verse. Notice that Daniel didn't wait for the crisis to decide what he was going to do. The decision, as we've already seen with Daniel, back in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8, the, one of the verses the children are looking at this morning, Daniel purposed in his heart not to be defiled. Nothing's going to change it. He purposed in his heart. The decision was made before the choice was presented. We see that with Daniel. And again, this is just Daniel's way of life. So this important verse, Daniel 6, verse 10, it's another hugely significant verse along with Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. By the way, Jerusalem was laying in ruins. Daniel had not seen it for almost 70 years, and yet he prays toward it in accordance with Solomon's petition as recorded in Second Chronicles. Let's just look at what Solomon said. And this is really why Daniel's doing what he's doing. Solomon, uh, the... Uh, Dedication of the temple and so on makes this prayer. If thy people, speaking to the Jews, speaking to God about the Jews, if thy people go out to war against their enemies by the way that they now should send them, and they pray unto thee toward this city which thou choosest, and the house which I have built for thy name, then hear thou from heaven their prayer, from, from the heavens their prayer, and their supplication, and maintain their cause. If they sin against thee, for there is no man which sinneth not. And now be angry with them and deliver them over before their enemies. Now notice this, this is so applicable to Daniel. And they carry them away captives into a land far off or near. Yet if they bethink themselves in the land whither they are carried captive and turn and pray unto thee in the land of their captivity saying, we have sinned, we have done amiss, we have dealt wickedly. If they return to thee with all their heart, now pause there, because that statement we're going to see in chapter 9, Daniel will actually verbatim use these words from Solomon. So Daniel knew this passage of scripture, and we'll see it in chapter 9. And he says these things, that we've sinned, we've done amiss. And Daniel clearly, on a regular, daily basis, three times a day, was turning his face toward the temple in Jerusalem and making this petition, this prayer to God. If they return to you with all their heart and all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they've been carried, them captives, and pray toward their land, so facing Jerusalem, which is what Daniel's doing, which thou gavest unto their fathers, and toward the city which thou hast chosen, and toward the house which I have built for thy name, then hear thou from the heavens, even from thy dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people which have sinned against thee. Now, we're not told the details of what Daniel specifically was praying, but I'm pretty sure, and we'll see again in chapter 9, that Daniel was praying for two things. He was praying for the people of Israel, and he was praying for the city, for Jerusalem. 
So we'll see that, that amplifying. And every day, according to this uh, prayer, this petition that Solomon had given some uh, four, 400 years or so uh, before this time, we'll see that uh, Daniel is praying in accord with what Solomon had said uh, in the knowledge that God would hear his prayer and would one day restore Jerusalem, restore Israel to their land. Now, of course, it's from this passage, the passage in Chronicles of Solomon's Prayer, uh, that devout Jews even today pray toward Jerusalem. It's because of what Solomon said. But it's interesting, it's also the reason that the Muslims today pray toward Mecca. Because after Muhammad was rejected by the Jews uh, in 600 AD, thereabouts, uh, he establishes Mecca instead of Jerusalem as the place of worship for his new religion. And that's the reason that the Muslims today pray toward Mecca. If you ask a Muslim, why do you pray toward Mecca? They have no actual scriptural reason or basis for it, other than, of course, what we read in the Bible and Solomon's prayer, that the Jews pray toward Jerusalem, and so, of course, the Muslims pray toward Mecca. Same idea. It comes from, it comes from the same source. The fact that his windows were open demonstrates, again, that readiness and his preparation uh, but it's also interesting that Daniel doesn't panic when he finds out about the decree. He just does what he did before. See, Daniel has never lived in fear of man. And of course, he's not going to worry now. His whole prayer life was habitual. It was just the easiest thing in the world for him to pray when trouble arose, because that's what he did. You, know, you do something three times a day, it becomes habit very quickly. And it just becomes part of the norm, part of what you do. Question for us, how often do we stumble at the first hurdle when trials come simply because we are not in the habit of taking everything to God in prayer? And of course, we have the great uh, song hymn that we sang, um, you know, oh, what needless pain we bear because we don't take everything to God in prayer. Now, notice we're told in the text that he kneeled upon his knees. Now, of course, there are many ways to pray uh, and there's limitless places to pray. But shutting yourself away and praying on your knees seems to make our physical body more in tune with the spiritual. It doesn't mean that God will answer your prayer better if you are on your knees, but it does get your focus in the right place. Jesus said this, he says, but when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy father, which is in secret, and thy father, which sees in secret, shall reward thee openly. Now, of course, bowing our knees when we pray emphasizes the fact that we are addressing the God of heaven whose presence we should never enter lightly. So there's some really good reasons why we should kneel before the Lord when we pray. Not every single time we pray, but that we should have times when we do this. You know, and of course, we have an advocate with the Father in the person of Jesus, but we should still fear as in reverence and respect God himself. You know, and in what was probably Jesus' most intense prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read this. He was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed. Okay, so Daniel's kneeling, Jesus kneels. There's a reason for it. It just gets our heart and our mind. Now, I tell you, as the older you get, the harder it is to get down and kneel and get back up again. Um, but that's the whole point. There's a sacrifice involved in this. It's a cost. It's, a, it's about really getting our head and our heart onto the reality of the privilege we have in praying. You know, when we address the creator God of the universe, we should do so with humility of heart that will naturally overflow into the physical. You know, when we pray, uh, and I encourage our girls when we're praying, don't just lounge around or lie down, you know, sit up. Uh, adopt a, a posture or position or kneeling if you can, um, such that you are different from just sitting there um you know in a prayer meeting i don't just sit there lounging back in the chair you know I, I my posture is such that i am aware that i am talking to god you know if somebody of of, of great stature were to enter the room you would show it by your your demeanor by your posture you change the way you sit you know, for those in employment, you know, if you go and sit in front of your boss, you don't just sit there casually, lean back in your chair with your feet up. You know, you sit in such a way as to demonstrate respect and attentiveness. Well, the same applies when we're speaking to God. It's not something that we're given as a law. It's something that we're uh, encouraged to do. Now, many of us, if we're honest, because we're told that Daniel prayed three times a day. You know, we struggle to pray once a day on our knees, i.e. actually putting time aside specifically to pray. Now, Paul, of course, does tell us that it's right and proper to pray on the go. 
And this is something we should also be doing. Paul said that we should pray without ceasing. Well, that means when you are going to the supermarket, when you're standing in the queue at the checkout waiting to pay, great time to pray. You know, when you're in traffic, uh, if you're in a journey somewhere, great time to pray. You know, uh, for me, I use my time at the gym when I'm, I'm there. I use that time to pray. But it's not the only time we should pray. We should pray out and about wherever we are, whatever we're doing. But we should be putting time aside specifically to pray as well. And we're also told, Paul says, that we should pray always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. But, you know, it's not to be a substitute for going into our room, into our prayer closet, as Jesus spoke of, shutting the door and spending time, quality time with God. You know, some of the times that God has spoken to me most clearly have been on those occasions when I shut every other distraction out and I've just focused on the Lord. For Daniel... Okay, again, this was his way of life. He was told as he did aforetime. Now, faced with this situation, Daniel just did what he'd always done since coming to Babylon. Again, almost 70 years, about 68 years before this point. And he purposed in his heart to be separated unto his God and that no distraction would keep him from this task. However, the attractions of our Babylon, the world around us, often become a subtle distraction that keep us from a life of prayer and that undefiled walk with God. You know, there's so many things that will pull our hearts and minds away. And that's why it's so important to have that time aside, as Daniel clearly did. Paul said that all things are lawful uh, unto me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. In other words, you know, there are some things that we can do that are very legitimate. There's nothing wrong, nothing sinful in them, but they can become a distraction that keep us from praying. Be careful what there is in your life that will stop you from spending time in prayer. You know, and I think it was Oswald Chambers that made the comment that he'd never, he didn't spend an hour in prayer, but he never went for an hour without praying. Uh, and I think there's a really important point there. You know, your times alone with God, it doesn't have to be for an hour at the beginning of every day. I mean, if you can do that, great, please do. Uh, we all need to be praying for each other. And uh, we appreciate the prayers for the fellowship and for the work of ministry uh, the Lord is doing through us here. But, you know, to be able to have just some time, just start with a small, uh, you know, five minutes if you can. Shut the door, pray. That's a more value and more benefit uh, than so many other things that we can invest our time and energies and efforts into. Now, it's also important to notice how Daniel behaves in this situation because the days are coming. And they're here uh, when those who would accuse us are going to be watching our every move, just as it was with Daniel. They're looking for an opportunity to entrap us. Now, already in Canada, it's an offence to declare that Jesus is the only way under their hate crimes laws. Now, that becomes a real problem for Christians who want to believe and preach and teach the Bible. You know, in various European countries, pastors have been arrested for taking a biblical stand against moral and gender and sexual issues. It's interesting that they all want us to be tolerant, and yet they're not intolerant of our position as Christians. You know, and we've seen it even recently in the schools uh, for our young people. Uh, that they've been asked to, uh, well, one particular situation, asked to design a poster to promote uh, LGBT uh, rights and so on. Now, you know, you, it's immediately putting them in a difficult position where they are expected to approve and condone of those things. And of course, if you have a view and opinion that says you do not find that to be the right way to live, that immediately you are singled out and your class as being somebody who's intolerant and so on. And of course, they love to come against us. Well, look, you know, there are laws already in place to protect Christians and to protect our freedom to believe what we want to believe. You know, what we believe has been believed uh, for the last 2000 years by the church. There's nothing new. And by the way, the moral standard of the Roman Empire was no significantly different. It uh, wasn't significantly different from today. You know, so don't think that what we're going through now is brand new and the Christians have never faced these challenges. It's the same. Um, you know, we should, of course, show love. We should show love and respect to all people. You know, Jesus did that. Jesus spent his time fellowshipping with uh, sinners and drunkards and so on and was accused for doing so. And yet, of course, he shows that love. But at the same time, God clearly sets a standard of what is right and what is wrong, what is moral, what is immoral. And as believers, we are to stand for those things. Now, it's going to be interesting because we're going to see some other interesting things that come out of that. 
I'll just come back to in a moment. But, but first of all, yeah, the church is not going to go through the Great Tribulation. Uh, I firmly believe that from Scripture, um, that it's very clear that God removes the righteous before he brings judgment. But we would be very naive if we thought that we we're going to escape persecution altogether. In fact, Jesus said that in this world we would be persecuted and that the world would hate us. If the world doesn't hate us, it's because we're not making enough noise. It's because we're not living our lives clearly enough like Daniel was. Now, it's been the case for the last 2,000 years that the church has been persecuted. In fact, in the West, we've largely escaped the persecution that many Christians face on a daily basis. It's one of the reasons that every time we get together on a Sunday and more often than not on our prayer meetings, we pray for the persecuted church. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that are going through incredible challenges simply for believing in Jesus Christ. You know, I think more Christians have been martyred for their faith in the last hundred years of the entire 19 centuries before that. Persecution is definitely on the increase. So how did Daniel behave in this situation? Well, notice that he didn't panic and nor did he do anything intentionally to draw or focus to draw the focus upon himself this is really important because today there are people that go out and that they actually actively go and seek to wind up or provoke reaction from the world that's not a good thing don't do that don't go and you know poke the bear as it were you know what you need to do is to live your life openly but not in a way that is to be offensive to other people unnecessarily daniel simply went home to his own home and there he carried on living his life and, of course, praying as he did, facing Jerusalem from his window. All right, he doesn't set out to provoke his accusers. So please, as believers, realize that our job is not to provoke people uh, and to wind them up. Love doesn't do that. Love is patient. Love is kind. And love does not provoke. Daniel simply carried on serving God in the way he'd always done. You know, and what we do should always be done in an attitude of love. And there is a way we can live our lives, even in these days, where we can stand true to God's word and not go and court unnecessary um, contention or cause friction um, just for the sake of it. Uh, there's no merit. There's no glory for God if we do that. But certainly we are to stand up for the truth. Now, as we noted in chapter three, we're to obey the laws and ordinances of man so long as they don't contradict the commands of God. Now, this is an occasion in scripture where we'll, we'll see that Daniel does go against the commands of man. You know, if such occasions occur, that man's laws become contrary to the word of God. Well, there is no question which side we choose. You know, we will choose to serve the Lord regardless of the cost. So verse 11 we're told, then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. It's interesting that uh, these men assembled. Now, the whole thing was a setup. They come to see him. You know, now we're not told how many men gathered outside Daniel's house to catch him in the act, as it were. But if these men refers to the same crowd that have already been mentioned in verse four and five, it may have been all the 120 princes and the other two presidents that all got together to gang up on Daniel to try and catch him doing this thing. Then they came near and spoke before the king concerning the king's decree. Has thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask of the uh, ask, sorry every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within thirty days, save thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? Well, you know they didn't really need to ask the question, you know, because they'd already written this decree and given it to the king to sign in the first place. And so he says, yeah, and the king answered and said to them, the thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which alters not. Now for the sting in the tail. And so they say to the king, then answered they and said before the king, that Daniel, and notice the wording, that Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity. So the two put down straight away uh, of Judah, third put down, regardeth not thee, fourth put down. O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, so it's like the fifth, uh, but makes petition three times a day. So there's at least six things now that are really accusing him of uh, or bringing before the king as a negative. And of course, this is their plan coming to light. You know, the fact that they've been watching him and observing and so on. And um, notice that they try to insult Daniel. You know, they're saying this guy's only a slave anyway. He's from Judah, that of all places. You know, wanting the king to kind of remove Daniel from this position. But notice what we're told. Then the king 
when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself. All of a sudden, the king realizes he's been played. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. No doubt he spoke to his lawyers and said, is there any way we can get out of this? And they say, I'm sorry, king, you signed a decree. And he said, yeah, but there must be some loophole. No, I'm sorry, king, there is no way out. This is what you've signed. This is what you must do. You are bound by the law. Again, notice that the king is not cross with Daniel because Daniel worshipped his God. And no doubt the king had already realized that Daniel's wisdom and strength came from his God. He's cross with himself for being so naive and played by these other officials. You know, how quick we are to try and undo what has been done when we realize the error of our ways. You know, how, by the way, do you think that Darius was going to explain this to Cyrus next time Cyrus was in town? Cyrus is the ruler of the empire. And Cyrus has already got respect for Daniel. And how is Darius going to explain, well, you know, that Daniel guy, that really great, you know, uh, man interprets dreams, all those things he did. Yeah, well, we threw him to the lions. You know, that was not going to go down well with Cyrus either. So there's a number of reasons why uh, Darius was no doubt concerned about this situation, but not least because of the friendship he seems to have uh, set up or uh, had with Daniel. Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Now, O king, uh, sorry, know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king has established may be changed. So he spends all day on this and they come back and say, oh, King, you cannot change this. Then the king commanded and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Remember, he's an 82-year-old man or thereabouts at this point. And they just literally pick him up and they throw him in. And I doubt if they were very gentle with him. Now the king spoke and said unto Daniel, Thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. It's interesting, you know, that with no way out, the king does what he had to do by the law of the Medes and Persians. But you get that question here. Did Darius actually have faith that God would deliver Daniel or was he just hoping? He makes a statement that God will deliver thee. Now, there may just be wishful thinking. It may just be, I really hope he does, but he makes a statement anyway. Interesting. I'll let you to ponder and think on that. In uh, Proverbs 14, it says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sinners are reproached to any people. The king's favor is toward a wise servant, but his wrath is against him that causes shame. And then we're told that a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords and that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. So the king is backed into his corner. He has no way out. He has to follow through and he has to even put his ring, the signet uh, on the, no doubt, the clay seal that would have been over this um, stone uh, rolled in front of the mouth of the den of lions. You know, there are few mental traumas that are worse than remorse. You know, when you realize you've done something that you shouldn't have done or you're responsible for something that's caused others hurt or pain, you know, nothing can be done to change those circumstances. And it can be a terrible affliction that can physically manifest itself in all sorts of ways with us. But remorse is a dreadful thing. Interestingly, Solomon said, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. And of course, it's a true statement, but I will point to Matthew 12, 42, where we're told that there is now one greater than Solomon. We have one that can make crooked that, sorry, can make straight that which was crooked. So regardless of what you've done, there is one outside of time who entered into his creation at a specific point in history and paid once and for all for every wrong thing we've ever done, said, or thought, thus wiping the slate clean. You know, and the writer to the Hebrews makes the point that God is able, because of the blood of Jesus, even to purge your conscience. It's not just that God's book is wiped clean, that the charge is no longer held against you. It's that God can actually purge your conscience and remove the stain of guilt from your heart and from your mind. This is the work of the blood of Christ, and it really is incredible. Verse 18, then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Uh, Neither were the instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. So the king has a really sleepless night, worried about what's going on, worried about whether Daniel is still alive, whether the lions have laid into him and torn him to pieces. You know, he's hoping that Daniel's God is going to save him, but just doesn't know and feeling so, so bad that he had the situation to occur in the first place. 
Uh, and it's difficult to imagine, but certainly we're told his sleep went from him. Uh, just really, really troubled night. Now, it's difficult to try and imagine just what the situation was, even for Daniel being thrown in there, you know, trying to paint the picture, paint the scene. Uh, of course, that doesn't do it just if that's just a, a line drawing. Uh, Forgive me for that. Um, you know, you, you get the idea that these lions are very powerful creatures. You know, there's a obviously a mummy daddy lion and three cubs. Uh, you can see the, the, the pride on their faces. Um, apologies, I couldn't resist lion jokes there. Um, but then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the lion's den. And we're told in verse 20, and when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamentable voice, He's so sad. You get this impression unto Daniel. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, oh, Daniel, servant of the living God. Notice how he speaks of Daniel's God. The servant of the living God is thy God, whom thou servest continually. You know, again, that speaks volumes of Daniel's lifestyle, that the king knows about this God, that Daniel serves him and trusts him and just is given the glory to God. So he says, is thy God in thy service continually able to deliver thee from the lions? And at this point, you can just imagine Daniel waiting, you know, big pause. Again, sorry, another little lion pun there. But, you know, you almost get Daniel just kind of waiting for a moment and the king sitting there, the other side of this, you know, this the stone that had been rolled in front, waiting. And then finally... Daniel breaks the silence. And Daniel said unto the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouth, that they have not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. You know, it just flashbacks to chapter three, and we get this, uh, the fiery furnace, and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, and the Lord meets them and delivers them and, and protects them in that situation. And here again, God doing the miraculous. And what a night it must have been for Daniel. You know, it was pretty clear early on uh, in that evening that those lions weren't going to hurt Daniel because, as Daniel said, God has sent his angels, shut their mouths. Now, uh, I mean, did Daniel just spend the night just stroking these great big cats and listening to them purr? You know, you can only imagine what it would have been like. But clearly Daniel was at peace and he's able to shout out. And the king, you can just get the impression was just overwhelmed you know how incredible must it have been for daniel to know that his angel was there and the lions couldn't harm him well there's a great lesson in this for each of us you know because we know that our adversary roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour but he cannot harm us either because we are also protected by the angel of the lord you know, and let me ask you just to pose the question to get you to think, you know, could it have been the same angel who protected the three in the furnace earlier in chapter three? You know, throughout the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is no mere angel, but the commander of the armies of the Lord, i.e. Jesus Christ. You know, it's worth noting that when a lion is about to move in for the kill, they're silent, not wanting to disturb their prey. However, generally speaking, the only times a lion roars is when it feels threatened. And sometimes, you know, if you've been to a zoo, it's behind bars, you know, and sometimes they can feel a little bit intimidated and sometimes you hear them roaring. Jesus said in Luke, 19, Luke 10 verse 19, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Uh, John states as well that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You know, our enemy is also behind bars. He can roar all he wants and little children might still be frightened just as a child at the zoo if a lion roars might be frightened. But of course, between that child and the lion, there is a wall of protection that stops the lion getting through. Well, those who are mature in faith know that they need not fear because between us and him, i.e. Satan, there is an impenetrable barrier of the blood of Christ and we are safe in God's hands. Well, we read then verse 23 was the king is seeding glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So now the king's able to do what he wants because this whole thing's over. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in his God. You can just imagine the look on the princes uh, and the other two prime ministers, as it were, as they see all this taking place. No doubt they were there. They were watching on with great interest. And they must have been absolutely beside themselves that Daniel has somehow miraculously saved this and now he's coming out. And the king attributes all of this to Daniel's God.
Now, there's a model, of course, here, because there is someone else who was faultless, yet betrayed, who was handed over to death, went down into a pit. A stone was rolled in place and sealed to stop him escaping. And yet on the third day, he was taken up out of the den and no manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in his God. What a great comparison with Jesus Christ. Now, I say that no manner of hurt was found upon him because that's not entirely true in regard to Jesus, because the nail prints in his hands and feet will remain for eternity as a reminder of his love for you and I. And the king commanded and they brought those men which had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions. These lions that have sat there all night really, really hungry and looking forward to a nice meal. Well, they now get their meal uh, and they're thrown into the den of lions, them and their children and their wives and the lions had the mastery of them. And uh, you can't beat on that language, can you? And break all their bones in pieces uh, or ever they came to the bottom of the den. Now, we're not told how many lions, but there could have been a great number of lions uh, in this den. And clearly, as these individuals are throwing, the lions just grab them on the way down and start tearing them to shreds. You know, we should not be envious of the workers of iniquity, uh, nor should we fear them, because their day is coming, just as it did here. David writes in Psalm 37, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Fret not thyself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his pace, and shall not, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plotteth against the just, and gnashes upon him with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn out the sword, and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, and to slay such as be upright of conversation. But their sword shall enter into their own heart and their bows shall be broken. And of course, that's exactly what happens here. That those who plotted against Daniel, their sword, as it were, did indeed enter into their own hearts. Robert Dick Wilson again made this comment. He said, the possibility of the destruction of the 120 satraps and their families by lions is shown from the fact that the monuments of the kings of Assyria say that they have menageries containing all the animals of the mountains of the plains, including elephants and panthers and lions. Further is shown that lions at that time were the pest of the Euphrates Valley, hundreds of them being killed in a single hunting expedition. We looked at that earlier. And then in one case mentioned by uh, Ashinubara uh, Rupel, king of Assyria, 50 young lions were captured alive and shut up by him in the city of Kalka. So then King Darius wrote, uh, Unto all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. This is very similar to Nebuchadnezzar's letter at the end of chapter 2. I make a decree that in every uh, dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. So just as with Nebuchadnezzar, as we said, Darius now acknowledges the God of Daniel, who is steadfast forever, and whose kingdom is without end. He delivereth and rescues and works signs and wonders in heaven and in earth, and who has, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions, so this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So uh, again, uh, this incredible statement that Daniel, this old man that's gone through so many different challenges in his life, still trusting God. Now Daniel, of course, becomes a role model for us because just as Joseph had prospered because he trusted God, regardless of the circumstances, so does Daniel. Jesus said in Luke 16, 11, if therefore uh, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous manner who, who will commit to your trust the true riches. You know, we are called to be faithful and trustworthy. But he also told us to be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as dove. And Paul tells us that Christians should work even harder for their employers than the world does, because we should work as unto the Lord. Everything we do should be as unto the Lord. And what a great model 
Daniel is to follow, whose faith follow is what Hebrews speaks of. So the book of Daniel, that's the end of the first historical section of the book. Uh, Chapter 7 through 12, we're going to see Daniel having breathtaking visions that foretell the future of not only the Medo-Persian, but the Greek and the Roman and final world empires. And we're going to be introduced to this little horn who's going to speak great things, a foreshadowing of Antichrist. And we see some of the most incredible prophecies in the Bible that help to unravel the days in which we're living right now and prove beyond doubt that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of Israel and he's destined to return and rule on the throne of David and establish an everlasting kingdom. So we need not fear. Though we see all these things going on around us, God is still on his throne. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Daniel and what a great example to us he is. May we live lives, Lord, that others would see that we worship and serve the God of Israel, the God who created and sustains all things. Lord, may our lives speak of your majesty, of your glory. And Lord, may our faith be seen of others, that they also would come to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We ask it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.